Well, if you are a visitor with us this morning, you might be wondering, wow, <laughs> why, why are they teaching on that one? <laughs> and uh, the reason is because one of the things that I value as a, a preacher is working through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, so that I don't get stuck on hobby horses as a preacher. I don't just preach on my favorite thing each week. I'm forced to preach on things like this, which I need to, because it's the Word of God. And it helps the church body hear things that they probably wouldn't hear otherwise. So we're committed to that. And here we are working through the book of 1 Corinthians. We've worked through the first 10 chapters And we're now in chapter 11, and here's what we try to do each time I stand up here. I try to take what this text says and understand what the author intended to communicate to his audience. That's the job of exegesis, they call it, the the work of getting to an author's intended meaning by dealing fairly with an ancient text. And so, I want to do Paul justice. I want to be a good listener to what he's saying. And then what I've got to do is try to say, what in the world does this have to do with us? Because we're removed from this situation. A couple thousand years, a couple cultures. So... That's what we're trying to do today as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul in the book to the Corinthians, the letter that he wrote to the Corinthians, has been trying to win this church back to what I'm just going to call healthy Christianity. The church has been lost, kind of lost her bearings on, on a number of important issues, including their appreciation of, of, of Paul's apostleship, some of the central tenets of the gospel, issues related to sexual immorality, church discipline, lawsuits, marriage, divorce, and then most recently in chapters 8 through 10, the church is attending feasts that are dedicated to idols that are celebrated in the presence and in the honor of false gods. So the church, this church has been... Uh, off track, and in light of the laundry list of the failures of this church, I'm actually kind of surprised to read what we read in chapter 11, verse 2. Listen to this. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Maintain the teachings just as I delivered them to you. So apparently, Paul is encouraged by some of the things that he's hearing about that are happening in the church in Corinth. So as harsh as the letter has been at times, Paul still sees sees some signs of life. He wants to encourage them. However, in chapters 11 through 14, Paul's going to address three areas in which the church in Corinth is not maintaining the teachings that he delivered to them. Look at just the beginning of verse 3. But. Okay, so verse 2 says, I'm, I just want to commend you for keeping the teachings that I delivered to you. But. And then the rest of chapter 11, all the way to chapter 14, Paul hits three issues. The rest of chapter 11 hits this issue of praying and prophesying 
in the public assembly, the church gathering. The rest of chapter 11, starting at verse 17, deals with the Lord's Supper, another issue related to the church gathering. And then chapters 12 to 14 deal with the misunderstanding and the misuse of spiritual gifts in the church gathering. So three issues with regards to the church gathering that the church needs to get some things straight on. Now the outline of today's passage, which is just dealing with this first issue, goes like this. Let me just give you an outline of this paragraph and then we're going to start to dig into it. Verse 2 basically functions as the introduction to chapters 11 to 14. I'm encouraged by what you've been doing with your faithfulness to the traditions, but, and now three, three or four chapters of some but. Okay, so that's what verse 2 is doing. Verses 3 to 10 argue for gender distinctions in public worship. And then in verses 11 and 12, Paul pauses and he gives a qualification. And then the rest of the, the rest of this section, the rest of the paragraph, verses 13 to 16, Paul provides one last argument and his closing. So really you've got three sections in this paragraph. An argument for gender distinctions, a qualification, and then a continuation of the argument. And what I want to do is start with the qualification. Verses 11 and 12 are the qualification. And the reason I want to do this is because I want to set us up for success. I want us to hear what Paul is not saying. I want to hear the qualification because by the time you get to verse 11, the things that Paul has said can lend themselves to serious misunderstanding. So I want to introduce you to the qualification up front so that throughout the rest of the sermon, you can guard your mind from going somewhere that this text is not going. Does that make sense? I want to set you up for success. So let's read verses 11 and 12. Here's Paul's qualification. He's he's given an argument up to verse 10 and then verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, a point that Paul just made a few verses earlier, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Okay, here's the point. Men and women need each other. This is God's design. All things are from Him, Paul says in verse 12. All things are from God. And this cooperative situation consisting of both men and women is God's design. So whatever it may be that we think that the Bible is implying in this teaching in verses 3 to 10, whatever we think it might lead us to in terms of a conclusion, if it leads us to the conclusion that men can get along just fine without women or that men are somehow superior to women, then we've misunderstood what Paul is saying. Men and women are interdependent upon one another. Men need women who are real women. Women need men who are real men. We need each other. Now, 
What this clarification reveals is that Paul's teaching on manhood and womanhood in verses 3 through 10 can be easily twisted to sound as though he is saying something that he is not saying. That's why he has to make the qualification. Namely, that men are superior to women. That's the misunderstanding you might get. And Paul says, don't go there. Because as we saw last week, God does in fact, and Paul's going to bring it up right here, God does in fact have a particular design for manhood and womanhood. We saw from the creation account last week, we looked at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that both men and women are created in the image of God and therefore share an intrinsic equality of value moral responsibility, excellence of personhood. And men and women are assigned different functions in their relationship to one another. Men are called to the responsibility of providing Christ-like leadership that seeks to love and to serve women even at the expense of our own well-being. That's manly. And women are called to come alongside that kind of leadership to help men be what God has called them to be and to affirm and support the godly leadership of brothers. That's womanly. And men have used teachings like that and like the one that we're going to look at today in order to support any number of agendas that treat women like second-rate Beings. Men have used the responsibility and the call of leadership as an opportunity to oppress women rather than to serve women, have they not? In fact, more often than not, I would say that the history of humanity has demonstrated that men tend towards tyranny over women rather than honorable and sacrificial loving leadership. The tyrannical leadership of men is the result of the fall. I wish I could go back to Genesis 3.16 and, and look at the curse that God lays upon humanity when He's talking to the woman and He says to Eve, your desire shall be for Him. Meaning, you will desire to have His position and He will rule over you. He will dominate you. This is part of the curse. The tyranny of men oppressing women is the result of sin. The call to lovingly lead is not the result of the fall. That was the created design. But tyranny, dictatorship is a sinful twist on the man's call to provide caring leadership. And sadly, men have used texts like this to support that tyranny. And Paul can see it coming, so he's preempted the abuse of his teaching by providing a qualification here in verses 11 and 12. Yes, the man is called to lead, but don't be arrogant about that fact. So Paul reminds us that we cannot forget that the male is dependent upon the woman for life itself. And he does it by appealing to the women who have made life possible for us men. Namely, our mothers. Right? Verse 12. 
For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. If it weren't for your mother, dude, you wouldn't even be alive. So don't go there. Don't let Paul's discussion on the distinctions between men and women become a commentary on the value of men versus the value of women because Paul doesn't go there and God doesn't go there. That's not where this text is going. We're not interested in oppressing women with our words. We're not interested in oppressing women with our jokes. We're not interested in oppressing women with our theology. And and I say jokes because... Sometimes when I talk about this issue, one of the guys will pop up, you know, a man is called to the role of leadership, loving leadership in his home, and the man will kind of make some crude joke about, yeah, that's right, honey, so get to work. And it's like, dude, just don't, don't do that. It just, it's not helpful. Because, and if you ever see that happen, just watch the wife when he does that. Watch, watch how, you know, just deflate. There's no need for that. Like, I don't agree with the feminist response of the oppression of men. I don't agree with it. It's the wrong reaction. But I understand why they think there's a problem. And why they have thought there is a problem. There has been a problem. Now, the Bible responds to it differently than the way that feminism has responded to it. But we don't need to add gasoline to the fire with stupid jokes about men being in charge and women being, you know, or cave women or something. Or us being cavemen. And then, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Okay, we're not interested in that. We're interested in freeing women to be women and to love being women. And, and men, we're interested in men being free to be men and to love being men. Because that's how God made us. That's what we want to do here. We need each other. Okay, so that's the crucial qualification. Paul's not going to go anywhere that leads you to think something other than what we just talked about. Okay, so what's the issue that's being addressed in Corinth? It's gender identity in public worship. Your gender identity in public worship. I'm going to start with verse 4 here. Every man who pray, if you've got a Bible, just take a look at it. I'm working from the ESV here. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Okay, so this is the first of these three issues that are taking place in the worship service that Paul wants to address. Specifically, he's here talking about praying and prophesying. Praying and prophesying in the public service with your head covered or your head uncovered, depending on your gender. You should do one or the other, depending on whether or not you're a man or a woman. Now, this is not the only place in 1 Corinthians that Paul's going to address differing roles of men and women in the public worship service. He does it again in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And he's actually talking about prophecy there as well. Specifically, he's talking about judging prophecy. And he says, when it comes to judging prophecy in the public worship service, 
We'll get there when we, when we look at uh, spiritual gifts. When it comes to judging prophecy in the worship service, Paul says, I want the brothers to do it. And that the, and that the women, this is his language, he says, I want the women to remain silent when it comes to that. So the worship service is an environment in which it's important to maintain one's gender identity. And more specifically here, the emphasis of this passage is going to fall upon explaining the appropriate actions and demeanor for women in the public worship service. That's just where Paul spends most of his time. It's what he's mostly unpacking here uh, in this text. Now, traditionally, interpreters agree that it's probably the newfound freedom in Jesus Christ that enables women to become full heirs of God's promises that has probably prompted the blurring of the distinctions here in Corinth. The the, the full participation of women in, in the inclusion in the promises of God is what has now prompted them to say, hey, there's total equality between men and women, and, and we don't need these distinctions between us. In fact, maybe you've even read yourself from Galatians 3. Let me read this to you. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And the point here is that the gospel is for anyone. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or a slave or whether you're a freedman. It doesn't matter even if you're a Gentile or a Jew. The promises of God that you might receive the inheritance of eternal life is available to anyone who will have Christ. It doesn't matter. That's, the, that's our gospel, and that's the openness and the inclusivity of the gospel. This is great news. And if you are Christ's, Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3.29, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So you can be an heir of the promises to Abraham. Now, if you know your Bible well, you would know, hey, that's everything. If you're in on the promise to Abraham, I mean, there's no more in that you could be. That's the big thing that redemptive history is moving forward towards the fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. And if you're a lady, then it's all yours if you're in Christ. doesn't matter what your nationality is, your social status, your gender. You can have it all. But that does not nullify your nationality or your social status or your gender, and the responsibilities that go along with those things. And it appears that some in Corinth would argue otherwise, that gender distinctions don't matter for Christians. And Paul says, "Uh, it's not true. It's not true. It's important to maintain your gender identity in your public worship gathering there in Corinth. So here's what we're going to do. 
we're going to look at this passage and say, what in this passage is timeless principle and what in this passage is cultural? You have to do that in this passage. Could be that it's all timeless principle. Could be that it's all cultural. I want to look at it. And what I'm going to do first is talk about what is not cultural. It's not, it's not all timeless principle, by the way. Just so you know, there's a little, little preview. It's not all timeless principle. There's some major cultural stuff that's going on here. I want to know what it is. What is not cultural in this text? I've got three things. And the first is this. The relationship within the Trinity is not cultural. Read with me verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. If you've got an NIV, it says the head of a woman is man. Something like that. And the head of Christ is God. The head of Christ is God. This is intra-Trinitarian relationship. And Christ is under the headship of God the Father. Headship, or this word head, refers to the one who holds the authority in a relationship. So, for example, in Ephesians 1, verse 20, the Father... Paul says, seated him, Jesus, at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. I'm sorry. The Father seated him at his right hand. Father seated Jesus at his right hand, the Father's right hand, in the heavenly places, far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So Jesus is above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and he put all things under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church. Jesus is the head of the church. He is the one who is over all rule, all power, all authority, all dominion. The Father put him as head. And the Father is the head of Christ. Christ is subordinate to his Father. Christ is under the authority of his Father. And it's not cultural. It's not unique to Corinth. It's a timeless truth. There's a functional subordination in the ways in which the Father and the Son interact with one another. For example, John chapter 5, verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. There is a functional subordination. Not an ontological subordination. That is to say, they function differently with regards to authority, but they do not have different essence. Jesus does not have the same authority as the Father in their relationship to one another, but it does not imply a reduced value in the excellence of Christ's being. Jesus is still fully God. So even within the Godhead, You have this. And I said last week, functional differences do not imply inferiority of personhood. Remember this? You've got children. You function under God as the authority 
over your children, for those of you who have children. The role you play is is an authoritative role in their life. But that doesn't mean that you have a greater intrinsic value as a human being than your child. So, functional differences don't imply inferiority. That's the first thing that's not cultural. Christ is under the headship of God. The second thing that is not cultural is the relationship between Christ and men. Verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Every man is under the authority of Christ. We live in a world that has been designed with authority structures. That's just the way that God set the world up. There's authority within the family. There's authority within the church. There's authority in the institutions of government and military. Nobody is free from submission to authority. And the point here is that men, males, are under the authority of Christ. This is not cultural. This is not just true in Corinth. This is a timeless principle. It's part of what it means to be a man. If you're a man, you're to take your leadership from Jesus. You're under His care, and you have a responsibility to look to Him for guidance and to affirm and to honor His leadership over you as a man. He is your head. And verse 3 says one more thing that is not cultural. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The relationship between the husband and the wife, or even the relationship between the man and the woman, is not cultural. The head of a wife is her husband, verse 3. Or if you go with the NIV, or the TNIV, or the NASB, or the King James Version, or the American Standard Version, the head of the woman is man. Now, how should we translate that? Should it be the head of the wife is the husband, or should it be that the head of the woman is the man? What's at stake? Well, if we say that the husband is the head of the wife, we're not saying anything more than what Paul says in Ephesians 5.23, namely that the husband holds the leadership position in the marriage covenant. If it says that the man is the head of the woman more generally, then it's a more general statement of men being assigned a role of leadership in God's creation in the man-woman relationship. Now, both of those are biblical. The Bible teaches both of those things. And this, these words can be translated either way. I tend to go with the latter, with the man-woman translation. And the reason is because... Once you start working through this passage, you'll see that Paul doesn't make any kind of distinction between wives and women or husbands and men. He's just going to start talking about women and talking about men. And you'll even notice in the ESV that sometimes they say husband-wife, but sometimes they say man-woman. They translate the exact same words differently in the same passage because Paul's not making any distinction here. So I think it's probably more accurate to think of this as man-woman relationship that the, the men in general have been assigned a leadership role. So, 
whether we translate this husband as the head of the wife or man as the head of the woman, in either case, the principle of male leadership in both marriage and in general is not unique to Corinth's culture. The headship of God, the headship of Christ, the headship of the man are timeless principles. That's what's not cultural in this text. What is cultural is the form in which manhood, womanhood, and headship were communicated in the Greco-Roman world. How were manhood and womanhood expressed in the Greco-Roman world, in in Corinth? And there are two things specifically that Paul talks about here. And one is that head coverings said something about your gender identity. And two was that the length of your hair said something about your gender identity in these cultures. These two things were widely recognized as gender statements in Corinth. And specifically, that wearing the head covering was what women did. It would be similar maybe to, the the parallel is not exact, it would be similar to saying that a dress and high heels communicate something in America. Does that help paint the picture? A dress and high heels say something about your gender. So that's kind of the role that hair played and head coverings played. Now, I'm going to skip a little bit about this. Actually, let me just say a quick word about this. There's some, there's some debate over what was the head covering. Was it a shawl or was it, some people say that it was a woman's hair put up in a bun. That was the, that was the covering. Um, and to let your hair down was to uncover your head. It doesn't really matter. Because whatever the case is, there was a cultural behavior referred to as covering your head that was widely recognized as a gender statement. And some women in the church seem to be rejecting that cultural expression of femininity. So I'm going to work with the idea of a shawl because I think that's probably, it makes more sense of the passage. But if you were to find out someday, no, actually it was the bun. Okay, cool. So it, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't matter. Whatever it was, the women were supposed to be doing it. And the men weren't supposed to be doing it. So let's talk about hair first. Come back to the shawl in a second. Let's talk about the hair first. There are two things that are disgraceful or dishonorable. In Corinth... It was disgraceful or filthy or shameful, the word could be translated, for a woman to have short or shaved hair, head. Verse 6. If a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. It's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head in Corinth. Why? It's probably just more faithful to say in in the Greco-Roman world. 
Why? Verse 15. If a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Long hair was glorious for women to have in Corinth. Guess who had short hair in Corinth? The dudes. In Corinth, it was a disgrace for a man to have long hair. Verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man... I'll come back to the nature comment in a second. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Why? Because it was the glory of women to have long hair. It's a very simple argument. It's disgraceful for a woman to wear short hair because short hair or a shaved head is what men had. And it was disgraceful for men to have long hair because men had short hair and women had long hair. So Paul's working assumption here is that it's shameful, it's dishonorable, it's disgraceful for men and women to identify themselves with cultural expressions of gender that are widely recognized as belonging to the opposite gender. That's the principle at work behind this. And in Corinth, head coverings and hair Well, I guess we're just talking about hair right now. Hair was a way of expressing your manhood or your womanhood. Now, what do we say about this nature comment? Verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? What's he saying here? Is he saying that nature says long hair is disgraceful for a man? Period. Cross the board across every culture. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. I think Paul is saying that it is that nature, it, nature says when a man does something that women do, it's unnatural. That when women do the things that everybody recognizes as the things that man, men do, it's unnatural. If I came up here today and I was wearing high heels and hose and a skirt and a blouse and a cardigan, you'd be like, dude, that is un- that's not natural. And, and, and you don't, when you say that, you don't mean there's something intrinsic to those clothes that across all cultures, in all times, in all places, that is unnatural for men. There are places in the world where a guy can wear a skirt type thing and it's totally manly. Right? In Scotland, the kilt. You know, I never wear one of those things, no way. But if you grew up in if you grew up in Scotland and like your your big tough grandpa wore a kilt and you were some little boy, you're like, yeah, I'm gonna wear one of those when I when I grow up. Because it's manly. So to say that it's Na- it's, it's unnatural for a man to have long hair. In Corinth it was. Because that's what women did. Does that make sense? It's not natural for 
It's not natural for a guy to wear a dress in the U.S. It's not natural. People do it, and when you see it, you go, that's not natural. It's not natural for a woman to, can I say this? It's not natural for a woman to wear a tux. Why? That's what guys wear. Do some women do it? Yeah. And it's weird. So that, it's unnatural. That's, that's the argument here that Paul is making about hair. It's not saying that there is something intrinsically wrong with a woman. There, in, in the United States of America, if a woman has, there are some very feminine short haircuts. And maybe there are some masculine long haircuts. Maybe so. Uh, but it, it's, it's just, though, your hair isn't going to communicate the same things here that they did in the Greco-Roman world. You want to be aware of what the culture regards as distinctly masculine and distinctly feminine. That's where Paul's going. So what does this have to do with head coverings? For a woman, not wearing a head covering was seen as the equivalent as having her head shaved or wearing short hair. Verse 5. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Which is to say, it's very, it, it's a very masculine thing to do in Corinth. For her to not wear the head covering when she's praying or prophesying is manly for her. So women should pray and prophesy with their heads covered in order to maintain their feminine identity as opposed to acting like men by uncovering their heads. This is, if, you were in the, if you were in Corinth in the Greco-Roman world, this would all make sense to you because you would, you would so identify the head covering with femininity. Men, on the other hand, are admonished not to wear head coverings because it would be a dishonor for them. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors her head. Why? Presumably because this is what women did in the culture. The point is pretty simple. Men act like men. Ladies act like ladies. Because we don't wear head coverings. This is like left field for us, we, when we read, you know, when we read through this this morning, everybody's going like, "I wonder how he's going to handle this one." This, we just don't do the head covering thing, and so, and, and the length of our hair isn't necessarily a huge issue for our, our culture. So, what does it look like for us? What does it look? What does this look like for New Hope Fellowship? Right, because we're not really dealing right, right here. You know, in, in what we normally are, are, are normal uh, congregational interaction, we don't have a lot of cross dressing going on. You know, there's not. You know, so I could give. We could. I the, the application could be like, dudes, don't wear heels, right? Okay. You know. Okay. I get. Hey, are, can we move on, move on to the next text then? Because it's not really a problem. So how does it apply? Well, it probably applies more subtly. Let, let me let me just suggest our our culture does not value maintaining your gender identity. 
doesn't value how important it is for you to be, if you're, a, if you're a man, for you to be masculine. And if you're a woman, for you to be feminine. Doesn't, it doesn't, it's promoting a carelessness for those things. And an encouragement, especially I think about our kids, you know. Are you, are you watching this in your children? Are you, if you have a little boy, do you want him to be a boy? Like, do you value that? You've got a little girl, and she's not acting girly. She want, like, if you think to yourself, yeah, my little girl, she does a lot of boy stuff. She's just always acting like a boy. Hey, hey that's a problem. It's a problem. God made her a little girl. She needs to be girly. Whatever that means to you. However you, however you perceive femininity to be communicated in our culture, you should say, I want my girls to be feminine. And I want my boys to be masculine. Because that's how God made them. God cares about that. God cares about you men being men. And you women being women. Now, we've got to think about what that looks like in our culture. And my definitions of some of that might look a little different than your definitions of some of that. There are some sports I won't let my children, my little girls, play. I'm not going to say which ones those are because I don't want to put you know, ideas in your head and be like, you know, Pastor Jeremy said that girls can't do... Um, so, so you fill in the blanks for... You, you, ask, you ask the question. Is anybody asking the question, would that be masculine? If she did that, would that be perceived as masculine? You should care about that. Would that be perceived as feminine for my son to be taking part in that? You should care about that. Would that be perceived, if, if I did this, would everybody kind of look at that and be like, that's kind of a feminine thing. You should care about it. You should care about it. Pursue. Embrace. And love being who God made you to be as a man or a woman. He cares about it. That's how he made you. He cares about it. It's a big deal. And perhaps we could think of lots of reasons why this is important. Like feminine men and masculine women is you know, bad for society, or it's bad for the church, or it's bad for the family, or it's bad for our kids. Lots of, you know, could, could, could see lots of reasons why this is important. But these are not the explicit reasons that Paul gives for his concern. His main concern is not the social impact that it's going to have. Actually, his main concern isn't even that they're going to be, you know, confused. It's a more fundamental reason for maintaining the cultural expressions of masculinity and femininity in the church gathering. At least the way that Paul's talking about it here. He's got something else that he's wanting to zero in on. Namely, failing to maintain gender identities dishonors your head. Read verses 4 and 5 again. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every 
But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Well, Paul just gave us some definitions of who the heads are in verse 3. The the verse right before this. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prophesies, prays or prophesies with his head covered, dishonors his head. Now, it could be that Paul's saying you're simply dishonoring yourself. You're bringing shame upon yourself when you act inconsistently with your gender identity. Bring shame upon your head. But in light of verse 3, Paul's concern is more clearly seen. Your head is your authority or your leader. And for men wearing a head covering that is doing what women do in Corinth, dishonors the man's head, namely Jesus. And for women not wearing a head covering that is doing what men do, dishonors her head, namely her husband or men more generally in the worship setting. So what's at stake here, more importantly to Paul than the social impact, is the dishonoring of authority that takes place when we refuse to embrace our gender assignments. It's a dishonoring of authority that Paul's really concerned about here. The man who acts like a woman dishonors the leadership of Jesus. And the woman who acts like a man dishonors the leadership of men. And this role reversal communicates rebellion against God's created order, an independent, defiant, and unruly demeanor rather than an honoring of authority. It's interesting, isn't it? That's really what he cares about. So this isn't merely a clothing issue. There's a bigger issue at stake here. Paul elaborates on it in verses 7 through 10. And the crucial thing to see here is that neither the man nor the woman are created for the sake of honoring themselves. They're created to bring honor to another by embracing their gender identities. When we embrace them, we bring honor to the one we are designed to bring honor to. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head. Don't act like a woman. For sense he is the image and glory of God okay. when you so men don't cover your head because you're to bring God honor glory is the word that he uses you're to bring God honor and when you embrace your masculine identity by not covering your head it brings honor to your leader God so the way men honor their authority is by not covering their head. That is, men honor God by being men. And woman is the glory of man. So, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. This means she's designed in such a way that she embraces her womanly identity, and when she does, it brings honor to the man. 
Woman is the glory of man, verse 8. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Remember, this is, this is from Genesis 2. We looked at this last week. She's made from the man for the man as his helper in order to bring completeness to the man who is alone. And it's not good for him to be alone. She's the only suitable helper for him. Only the woman can complement the man and compensate for the man's insufficiency. He's got, a, he's got a major problem. Only she can bring completeness to that problem. She brings him honor or she brings him glory, is the word that Paul uses, by embracing her helper identity, by giving him assistance, by being his supporter, by affirming his leadership. She's the glory of man, Paul says, for she was created from the man and for the man. So that's why, Paul says, in light of her helper design, she needs to have a symbol of authority on her head. Verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. That's what the head covering communicated. I'm embracing my calling to womanhood. I'm embracing God's design. I'm embracing my helper identity. And I'm physically indicating that I honor the leadership of the men in this congregation and the angels are watching. Heaven is watching the way that men and women interact in the worshiping community. Because God cares about this. In other words, Paul is saying that the pre-fall created order indicates a functional distinction between men and women that ought to be maintained in public worship, namely, male leadership and female support. Male leadership and female support of that leadership. That's what this passage is all about. That's the issue in Corinth. That the ladies are not honoring the call to womanhood and dishonoring the men's call to leadership in the church. And it's instruction for the women in Corinth that Paul is giving here to give firm support to their brothers as those who are called to provide caring leadership in the church. And it's a call for us to do the same. It's a call for the women in New Hope Fellowship to do the same, to continue to embrace the helper identity and to pray for the brothers and to nurture them and to root for them and to encourage them and do whatever you can as a sister to help them be the men of God that Jesus wants them to be in the church for the sake of the health of New Hope Fellowship and the mission of the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But sisters, when I say that, I have to make sure that you're hearing me say something loud and clear. I'm asking you to continue, yes, wholeheartedly to embrace your helper identity, your womanhood, the fullness of your femininity, and yes, to support your brothers and their call to godly, manly, sacrificial leadership in the church. But you have to know that I'm not asking you to disengage as though we don't need you. 
I'm not asking you to disengage. We are heirs with one another of the promises of an eternal kingdom. And we are brothers and sisters who are all part of a body that has crucial parts to it. Each member doing its part. Paul does not say merely, ladies, maintain your gender identity. He says, ladies, maintain your gender identity as you pray and prophesy. He's not telling them to stop doing what they've been doing. He's just saying, do it in a womanly way. Do it in a way that's fitting for your identity. These women are to continue to be active in the life of the church in a way that's consistent with their feminine identity, yes. In a way that encourages men towards leadership in general, yes. But their femininity does not render them inactive or unimportant in the church or uninvolved in the church any more than their femininity would render them inactive, unimportant, uninvolved in their own homes. Right? Like femininity does not equal inactivity or unimportance. Every member plays a crucial role in our body. And, and we are a train wreck without you ladies. So you've got to know that, that that's, Paul's not trying to discourage participation. As you pray and prophesy, be a woman. As you pray and prophesy, keep going. Keep plugging in. Keep serving. And brothers, keep stepping up. Right? Don't wear heels. Play the man. Lead. Love. Serve. Lay down your life. Stop being selfish. Work hard. The Lord has redeemed a people for Himself. This family. This bride of Christ. This people. This church and there's not a single man in this room who deserves the privilege of serving this church family every single man in this room has failed as a leader in their home and in the church prime example right here we all have but jesus doesn't call us to serve and to lead on the basis of our success in having done it before thank god jesus calls us to by his grace step into the calling that he's given to us so brothers care for this church care for this body lead with loving sacrifice and sisters come alongside and support support these men as they step up, step into leadership and move forward. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, verse 16, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God that cares deeply about these things for our good and for his glory. Let's pray. accomplishes all that you desire and we all believe that we all believe that this is your word maybe struggle to know how to understand it or how to apply it why you have done things the way that you've done things will you give us grace as people in process Will you help us to 
realize that you're not asking us to just overhaul our entire lives in one moment or through one sermon. We help us to just know what the next step is. We help us to be men of God and women of God who love to be men and women who are so thankful for the way that you've made us. So joyfully embracing your design. Let your word, Lord, continue to form us. We might be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Take a moment now just to respond to the Lord in your own heart.